Hi, everyone. This is Amanda, one of the co-founders of Hysterical. This week, we are joined by Carolyn Harris. She's a member of parliament, and she is fighting the good fight for menopause. It's no small thing that the UK is further ahead than we are, and I think they have Carolyn to thank. So without further ado, I'm going to drop you straight into the conversation. Welcome, everyone. My name is Amanda Kazgar. I'm one of the co-founders of Hysterical. We are creating a whisper culture for menopause. And a whisper culture is really passing uh, stories on from woman to woman, generation to generation, because we believe mature women with agency, curiosity, and confidence are needed to change the world. And we have... um, I think one of the most profound game changers for women joining us here today, Karen, oh God. right? Let me just like, <laughs> let me build you up and then you can blush as um, crimson as your background, Carolyn, and then um, you'll be able to share your story. I We are joined by Carolyn Harris. She's a member of parliament for Swansea East, uh, which is a beautiful little community in Wales. And Carolyn has, um, I, I would say, unwittingly found herself as a poster child for menopause and menopause advocacy in the UK. And what I think is really profoundly um, disappointing and important for us to know in America is how far ahead the UK is than we are in this country in terms of menopause and menopause leg- legislation and then even awareness. Um, and you came to this really through purpose. Um, and so we're going to hear your story today and talk all, all about a lot of things, but not least of which is how we can all be the change for the change, which is what the title of this show is called. So Carolyn, welcome. We're so excited you're here. I'm delighted to, delighted to join you. What time yeah. is it with you guys? Well, it's 10 a.m. here in Seattle. It's about 1 p.m. on the East Coast of the U.S. And then what oh, time is God. it for you? 6 p.m.? Um, right? Yeah, it's just gone six, five past six. We thought this I'm time actually in the states. I'm fl- I'm flying to the state. I was in New York and Washington in the beginning of March, and I'm in New York and Fort Worth. I'm flying oh. out on the twenty first of May. And what will you be doing here? Oh, I when I come back, I'm doing. Uh, when I come out in May, I'm doing. Um, Policing and NYPD and Fort Worth policing. So it's part of a Home Affairs Select Committee meeting. But when I came the beginning of March, I went to the UN, the Women's Conference, and I went to Capitol Hill to talk menopause to Biden's advisors. Oh, good. So did they were they leaning in? What was happening? Like, what would the body they, language? Say? I think they were quite surprised at how successful we'd managed to be in, to raise awareness. And I also spoke to a women's charity. Um, and one of the things I suggested to them, and I think they're trying to do this, was trying to get some of the Congress people to actually hold a debate in October, because October is World Menopause Month. Um, so I think they're trying to set up a Zoom where I can talk to some Congress men and women about helping them to actually get the narrative going out there. I also spoke to Biden's um, health secretary, uh, Dr. Dorothy Fink. Okay. And, um, she was really keen to get some conversations going around menopause. So I'm going to follow up on all that to see what we can do to help you guys. Oh, good. Rad. Yeah. It, I mean, it, we'll take it all. Um, and I, and I want to, um, we have people calling in from all over the world and then this will go as a podcast. So I want to first spend some time sharing your story and how you became, um, who you are, not the least of which for menopause, but even a member of parliament, I think your story is one for the ages. And I know you've had a long week and it's been a long day. So if you want to get your beverage of choice <laughs> and just like, you know, pretend like you're talking yeah, talking to your sister or a neighbor. What is particularly delightful, um, no one needs to know this, but it, it bears me saying, because I feel called, um, I'm well, I'm half Welsh. My mom was born in Wales. And um, as we shared when we preached, when we did our pre-talk, and so it feels like I'm talking to one of my aunties. Um, uh, and so to me, this feels like coming home. And I, um, I've been so excited. Oh, I'm getting emotional. <laughs> um, I've just been so excited to talk to you and to share you with um, everybody here. So um without yeah without preamble how'd you get here oh god um 
So I suppose it was sad stories to start with. Um, uh, in 1989, and everything goes back to 1989, really, um, I lost my son Martin in a road accident. And uh, my life changed at that point because so many things that I thought I would end up doing, I didn't do, and so many things I never thought I would do happened. Being one of, being coming an MP was one of them. Um, and... I was a dinner lady and a barmaid. I was a barmaid when I lost Martin, and then I later went in to be a dinner lady in a special school because I wanted to, I don't know, I wanted. To, I think I wanted to be around people who were what I felt were worse off than myself because I'd lost Martin, but these kids, you know, you, you're looking at these severely mentally and physically handicapped kids every day, and, you know, I just felt, well, if I can do something to help somebody else. So I ended up doing that, and I didn't actually go to university till I was 34. And I went to university, and I graduated, and then I ended up working for a children's cancer charity, raising funds to actually give kids who were dying their last wish, which was taking them to see Santa, taking them to swim with dolphins in, in SeaWorld, something like that, and all those kinds of things. Always been political, always had um, an interest in politics, always had a, an absolute passion for the Labour Party, even before I really knew what the Labour Party was. Um, and so I'd always been active politically. In, in And when I say politically, I mean, if there was a school, if we needed a school crossing, I was the gobby one. If anybody needed a letter written to complain or to... Um, to try to get something sorted. It was me they came to. So, you know, before I went to university, I suppose I had the, the skills to do things like that, but I just didn't know what to do with them. Anyway, while I was working for the Trans Children's Cancer Charity, um, the um, the Member of Parliament who was then there, um, man who'd been there for years and years and years and why he'd always campaigned for, was retiring. And the the person to replace him had to be a woman. We had, we had a quota, if you like, where we called them all women shortlist. So the woman who was going to replace him, she came to see me to ask me to support her. And I foolishly allowed her to talk me out of going for it myself. Because I had my son Tom is 21 then, but he was like three, maybe four then. And all the negatives that were in my mind about why I didn't, I shouldn't go for it. She strengthened and I didn't go for it. But after I, she was in post about six months, she discovered that she didn't have enough local knowledge. So she asked me, would I help her? So I ended up working for her for 10 years. When she then decided to retire, I'd had a good grounding in, in what politics was. Because at one point I thought that I didn't have the intelligence or the capability to stand up in the House of Commons and to ask questions and to write speeches and all this. And I, and I learned from that experience that um, the only thing I didn't do was the standing up in the chamber, everything else I was doing. So when she retired, I tried to go to be the candidate. I got selected and then I got elected in 2015. And... I was 55 at the time, so I came into it not to make a career or a name for myself as, I know, a rising star in the Labour Party. No intentions of becoming the next Prime Minister or the first Labour woman Prime Minister. I just felt that I'd seen and experienced a lot of the stuff that people are currently and will always experience, you know, the, the struggling financially, the emotion of losing a child. I didn't know at this point. I thought I'd had a nervous breakdown in 2010, then discovered it was menopause. But when I went into politics, I believed that I'd had a nervous breakdown. So when I was talking to people who I knew, who I was friendly with, who I lived by or wherever, I really felt I knew what they were going through and, and thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to use it, this platform to make change for other people. And that's what I did. I went into politics and I got elected in May 2015. And um, very shortly after that, started asking the UK government if they would please pay for children's funerals. Because when we lost Martin, financially, it was a huge, huge problem for us to pay for his funeral. Um, and I convinced the UK government, but I, I, the, the Scottish and the Welsh government did it before the, the UK government, and the, the Irish Parliament done it when they when they went back for a very short period of time. Um, and and then the, the other stuff I've done, I've done a lot of work on problem gambling and um, 
try and you can't stop somebody becoming um, a gambling addict. You can't any more than you can stop somebody becoming a drug addict or a, an alcoholic. But what you can do, or what I felt I could do, was to mitigate the problems that arise and to try to make sure that the environment which led them to it, i.e. how easy it is to gamble online and how predatory the companies can be, that if I could tackle that, then that was at least helping the situation. So I did that. Then the, the uh, machines in the in the bookies where you, you lose a huge amount of money. And then in 2018... I started talking to some women who were trying to get menopause and issues that menopause create or problems that women encounter with menopause. They wanted a platform, so they came into the House of Commons and we used to, you'll you probably do it here in, in, in Capitol Hill where our politicians will have people to come in and they'll promote a campaign by having photographs taken and, and putting it on social media. So we were doing a lot of that. And then I held a debate in the House of Commons on menopause. And it started to take off, but it wasn't going fast enough for me. And then in 2021, in, in the UK Parliament, we have something called private members' bills, which is where you literally have a, um, it's like a raffle, so you put your name next to a number, and if your number is called, then you have an opportunity to get a piece of legislation through if you convince the government that it can be done. And so when I got a private member's bill, I got number three, which meant I was guaranteed to be way up on the list of being heard. I thought, rather than do something on menopause. So I, originally, I wanted to do workplace policies. I wanted to make sure it mandatory for doctors to learn about menopause. I wanted to do all these things, but realised that you only get a year to do it in. So I needed to do something which was going to happen and relatively quickly and would raise a lot of awareness. And I live in Wales and I don't pay for prescriptions. Women in Scotland don't pay for prescriptions. Well, nobody in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland pay for prescriptions, but you do in England. So I thought, right, if we can level the playing field a bit and we can make women in England give them the same opportunity to access HRT free, then that may be what we need to actually raise awareness on the menopause. Well, after a long battle, the government wouldn't give it free, but they give it as a one-off annual payments. So now women in England only pay once a year. They pay just under $20 a year for all their HRT medication. But the real point of it was to raise awareness of the menopause. Because once once that was being seen across the world and across, across the country as the UK Parliament talking about menopause, then suddenly everybody got interested. And then we got some celebrity campaigners to come in and, and we've built on it from there. You know, we, we've there's loads of things that we're doing wrong and there's a huge amount that we need to get right. And it's not the UK government doing it. It's the campaigners. It's, it's the platform we've created. But slowly but surely, the message is getting across. And people who have the ability to change things like a lot of big companies are now changing their working practices for example a lot of companies and this is true in america will have private health insurance now the basic health insurance practice practice um, package does not include menopause so when i go to companies who have got private health they say have you thought about upping the premium to make sure that menopause comes on it and so that's working so slowly but surely by us going out and talking to people, we're changing the environment. The government are not playing catch-up, which is a big bone of contention for me. But in terms of it being talked about and it being acted on by people outside the government, it's working. But And I will get there with the government because we we, we fast heading into a general election in this country where we will have a change of, of government. And of course, I'm in a, a perfect position to influence the manifesto of the next government. So I'm constantly talking to people who will be in a position to influence policy and say, you need to do this. And, and gen I genuinely can. Uh, there is no area of social policy where I cannot give you a case for treating menopause from domestic violence to suicide yeah to benefit, to state pension, to the justice system, to the behaviour of women who are incarcerated, right across the spectrum. I can give you 
yeah. you know, a fact about how it's important that we we tackle the issue of menopause. Yeah, right on. Yeah, it's amazing. And I mean, you 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 shared so much that I want to go back to. But one of the first things you said was that, oh, I thought I was having a nervous breakdown, and it was the menopause. I mean, that's no small thing. Um, can you share a little bit about your relationship to HRT and how you got there and how you yeah have well I mean line? yeah yeah so my my menopause journey is my, my actual I I have I've only owned my menopause and I I'm, I'll explain why I'm saying that for about four years maybe five years so when I lost Martin. Um, I didn't take any antidepressants and my my way of dealing with it was to never stop and allow myself time to think. So I kept pushing myself and, and hence I went to university and I still worked as a dinner lady and I run the family. And you know, anyway, so I never allowed myself to stop. And in 2003, I had an ectopic pregnancy. And after that, my periods were really, really erratic. So in 2010, I bled for about six months nonstop. And I mean, I was hemorrhaging. It was horrendous. I was passing out on my office floor. I couldn't walk up the stairs without having to stop and take a breath and then come to bed or go to the bathroom and the same on the way down. I didn't want to go. I, I just, I was just exhausted. And eventually and I went to... Carolyn? 2010, so, were you 50? At, in 2010, you were how old? I was 50. That was the 50. year I was 50. Okay. And um, eventually, a friend of mine said, you look as if you're ready to die. So I went to my GP and explained to him what had been happening. He took blood there and there, and he sent me straight down to the hospital to take my blood down to have it tested. We took the blood in, and before I'd even reached my home coming back, the hospital were on the phone to say they had a bed for me. So I went straight back down, I went in, and the nurse actually said to me, you're the woman who's the living dead. I had a hemoglobin of four. So they couldn't even look to see why I was hemorrhaging continuously until they'd given me four pints of blood and a pint of iron. So for the next 48 hours, I mocked up to a drip, then they feel that my my hemoglobin is, is, is high enough that I'm not going to die on the operating table. And they operate, they do investigation and discover massive fibroids, which they removed. And I've never had a period since. But I don't know when I stopped having periods and started having menopause, um, fibroids bleed, I don't know. So I couldn't tell you when my last period was. So... When I came out of hospital, I was physically and mentally exhausted. And for the first time since losing Martin, I couldn't push, push myself because I just did not have the energy or the stamina or the will. And I very quickly started spiraling into what I thought was a nervous breakdown. So I went to my GP and I told my doctor about my anxiety and my depression I never told my doctor about anything else because I didn't think it was relevant. I thought the fact that I could not um, get up off the chair without moaning and groaning because my legs were so achy and my, my, my hands were so achy, I thought that was just all part of getting old. I didn't mm. mention the fact I'd be in bed at night and I, my legs were twitching continually and, you know, restless i didn't mention the migraines i didn't mention the sweats i didn't mention the itchy skin i didn't mention anything all i said was i'm depressed and i need help so i had a bit of cbt i went on diazepam and then eventually i went on antidepressants and during that really dark time i was catastrophizing like you wouldn't believe so i would i would be during that first six months i would be sitting down, not thinking about anything. And suddenly I think, if I don't go back to work in six months, I'm going on half pay. And within 30 seconds, it would go from being on half pay to not having wages, to being sacked, to my house being repossessed, to my husband leaving me, to my kids being taken into care, to my um, me being living on the streets, to me becoming an alcoholic, to me ending up in jail. And all in a matter of 30 seconds, I was just 
uncontrollable. But the, the antidepressants eventually took the edge off it. And then in 2014, like I've said, I had the opportunity to stand to be selected and I was selected. And then in 2015, I was elected. And like I said to you earlier on, I managed to get some good work done on children's funerals and some work on um, gambling problems. But what I was doing was I was living to work. So I was going to work of a morning and I was giving everything to the job. I was either going back to the hotel or to when I had a flat to my flat in the night and I'd go straight to bed. I didn't socialise. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't go on holidays. I would come up with all excuses under the sun not to go on holidays. And we were a family that went to Florida every year for about 10 years. And we went from that to we didn't even have a caravan anywhere. I just couldn't face going anywhere. And this went on for about three years. I was having these women in to give them a platform on menopause. They were coming in and I was talking about how we needed to change things for women to make sure they had a better deal. I would stand in the House of Commons chamber and talk about how we needed doctors to be more aware of menopause. We needed employers to understand menopause. We needed women to talk about menopause. We needed men to sympathise menopause. And I don't know how many times I've said, it was fine for me because I sailed through my menopause because I genuinely believe that I'd didn't have a menopause and it was only when I was talking to other women and I realized that the aches in my knees and my joints was menopause the the irritable legs was menopause the itchy skin was menopause the headaches were menopause and it was a little bit like somebody slapped me across the face because I suddenly sat in the office one day and said my god I'm menopausal and that's when I owned my menopause. And I felt better about it once I owned it, because then I could say, I'm menopausal. And then that went on for two years. And Where you when owned I... it, but you didn't do anything about it, Carolyn? No, no, nothing at all. Nothing at all. I just now accepted the fact that the reason why I was aching, the reason why I had migraines, the reason why I had these things was menopause. But it was too late for me to do anything about it because I was too old. Because I was 60 by now in 2020. Well, and you're so, a tough bird. <laughs> you are, you are. No, because I could have been living a lot. I could have had such a much better life, much younger. You know, I've wasted so much time. And then when I started working on the menopause bill in 21, when I started to think about what I could do to help women and the, making HRT cheaper for women in England, I was talking, I was Davina McCall, actually, and Davina said, well, I was saying to her, oh, I still get this, I get that. And she said, well, doesn't the HRT help? And I said, oh, I'm not on HRT, I'm too old. And she said, who told you you were too old? I said, well, nobody, but I've never gone and asked for it. Mm. So I then paid privately and I went to private doctor thinking. My opening line to the doctor was, I know I'm wasting your time because I'm too old for HRT, but I just thought I'd have the conversation. And within 20 minutes, I was on estrogen, progesterone, and I was about to be getting testosterone for the first time ever. And well, all of it for the first time ever. And the minute she said she was putting me on this this medication and it was going to be arriving in two days, I was a different person. So the, it was the placebo effect in the beginning. I felt as if I'd taken control of my health. The medication came, I started taking it and I continued to pay private until August last year. Wow. But, but like in Wales, I could have had estrogen and progesterone. I could have had free. I couldn't have had testosterone because it's not licensed for prescription of you. Not for women anyway. It is for men. But I was. I thought right. I'm, I kept thinking. I'm going to go to my GP. I'm going to go to my GP. But because of what I know, that 41% of medical schools don't talk about it. Vast majority of doctors know nothing about it. A lot of doctors are hesitant because of a study that said that HRT causes cancer. Because of all the things that I know from the women I work with, I was really reluctant to go to my own GP and say, "Please, can I have HRT?" But I thought, "Oh, this is ridiculous." Because I'm spending like a hundred dollars a month on something I could get for free. So I went to my GP who instantly recognized me and said, I've done the training. How many pumps are you on? And give me a prescription <laughs> straight away. 
the only thing she couldn't do is to put me on testosterone. Now, that's a big bone of contention for me because in this country, they will only prescribe women with testosterone if you can prove that your lack of sex drive is affecting your mental health or your marriage. And I know women who've gone to, and then you get the male How do you prove that? Would well, you be like, bring your husband in? I, 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 I know women who've actually gone to get HRT and have failed and have gone back and said, if I don't get HRT to improve our sex life, my husband's going to leave me. And a GP have said, no, we can't have your husband being upset. And have oh put them on HRT. So women do do it. Women are, I mean, but then it's a male HRT. It's a male testosterone. It's tester gel. So you have to, you have to guesstimate what you're going to put on. Whereas the stuff that I'm on is made for women. It's the correct dosage, and it's like a little pea size that gets put on my finger on the top of my leg. And I've been taking that now for well, it's going on for three years now. It was twenty, uh, twenty, no, two years, twenty twenty one. It'd be two years in July since I went on HRT, and. My life have changed. I've since then discovered collagen. Are you all taking collagen? <laughs> I mean, no, but tell us more. So collagen is what you lose from your skin. And I found that collagen has been absolutely a fantastic supplement to HRT. I am a different person. It, it, so you're, it are you supplementing on... it orally? Like you're drinking collagen in the morning or something? Well, I... I I was drinking it. Now I've got capsules, which are, they are absorbed straight into the bloodstream. It helps with the joints. It helps renew ligaments. It helps with the skin. It helps with the brain fog. But the key to all this is, it for me, was HRT. The HRT yeah. got me to the point where I was happy to tinker with things like collagen. But it's, if I was to come off the HRT, then that would be me. I mean, I have, I, I have gone away. I went to New York last year and forgot to take my HRT. And by the time I come back, I was climbing the walls. Yeah. Literally climbing the walls. So when people say, you know, how do you know it's working? I know it's working. Because yeah. I, I am, I'm 10 years, I look 10 years younger and I feel 20 years younger than I did. You know, I got a zest for life again. Yeah. We, we started going on holidays. I mean, I never went on any committee trips abroad because I knew I just couldn't do it. Now yeah. I've been I've been to Iceland, I've been to America and coming back out there in the fort. I don't know. Now I, I'm just living life as much as I possibly can now. And that's definitely yeah. because I've owned my menopause. And now I try to get other women to own theirs. And, and it is about owning it. It's about it's about realizing what works for you, because it won't be HRT for everyone. But it will be it, it will be HRT for most people if they can get over the fear of taking it. But you've got yeah. to have a doctor who's confident to prescribe it. And even doctors who understand or do recognise the menopause, there's a lot of nervousness about prescribing HRT because they don't know what HRT is good for women who've had other health conditions. Right. So you know, I'm desperately trying to get as many GPs as possible trained into understanding the basics, not just GPs, women's nurses, prescribing chemists, anyone who is capable of having the conversation with the woman, identify, asking the right questions. Because if you well, go enough, to a doctor yeah. at, at 45 and you say, I'm really anxious and really depressed, if you were to ask a series of other questions, you might not have to prescribe antidepressants because you might actually come to the realisation this woman is menopausal. But yeah. it's about confidence and knowledge. And that's what my whole reason for living is at the moment. Well, I'm glad. We're all glad. I the I think the um the thing that we also want women to have agency over is our own bodies and knowledge of our own yeah. bodies. It's about right. choice, isn't it, Amanda? It's about having the having the knowledge to make the decisions. That's all we want. Yeah. So let's educate each other and let's share stories. I love that you had this community of women that were, you know, and even someone like Divina McCall, Divinia McCall, who's, you know, such an advocate for menopause in the UK and that you had access to her and she asked you the question that created the slap across yeah. the face moment, right? So how can we talk to each other and have more of those opportunities and just ask the question? Yeah. So this other thing you said, like you could draw a red line between every sort of impact on the government with women of a certain age and menopause and if we were to nip menopause in the bud we could sort of 
um, mitigate these long tail effects. Let's talk a little bit more about that because I don't think people are as aware of, yeah, what the implications and the ripple okay. effects. So 51% of the population are women. Yeah. Um, 51%. So, and the menopause is going to affect 100% of the population because every man will know a woman, whether he works with her, lives with her, rents a flat off her, whatever. Everyone will know a woman who is going to be affected by the menopause. And so many women have gone through life thinking, I sailed through my menopause. But when you ask them the question, did you take antidepressants? Did you think you had fibromyalgia? Did you ever have this? Did you ever have that? I've never yet met a woman who says, no, I didn't have any of that. But because we didn't talk about it, they didn't treat it, they didn't recognise it, and they just put up with it. And in many cases, walked away from jobs. So four in 10 women reduce their hours. One in 10 women actually give up work because of the menopause symptoms. Now, in the UK... If you are not financially able to support yourself, then you're eligible for state benefit. If, for example, you have been signed off on the sick with, with anxiety and depression, after a certain period of time, you no longer have a job, and then you will go on to a state benefit. So the, 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 the government, if you like, are currently funding nearly a million women in the UK were on long-term sick and were over 50, and they've no idea how many of those women are many menopausal and how many of those women have actually got health conditions which would stop them from working. They've done no work at all to have a look. How many of them are off with anxiety and depression? I reckon we could easily get half of those women back into work if we yeah. were to do some kind of test to verify what their health condition is. In this country, when you work, depending on the number of hours you work, then you pay what we call national insurance. And that national insurance goes towards your state pension when you reach a pensionable age. If you only work part-time, you don't pay a full stamp. So when you're eligible for state pension, you get a reduced pension. And if you get a reduced pension, you are then eligible for something, for something called pension credit, which brings you up to the level of what you would have had if you'd been in full-time employment. So every woman who reduces her hours is paying less national insurance, is not going to qualify for full state pension, and it's going to be a burden on the government because they are going to have to give her the money to make it up to the level, which is the, the minimum standards level. If you own a company and you've got good women working for you, can you really afford to give up that experience and that loyalty? So, and I'm not saying we want to stop younger people getting jobs, but you know, why have we got to be on the scrap heap at 50? You know, we need to work for as long as we want to. Well, and, and wouldn't, like, I think if we were to ask those 1 million women, if if they were to feel better, feel vital, feel a zest again, if they wanted to work, I would argue that most of them would say yes. You know, most I think- definitely. Most yeah, definitely. I believe people want to be a contribution, yeah. right? Nobody wants to feel tired or sluggish or anxious, you know, or like- moody or depressed. And, and, and an example of that, and it's not women working, it's a little bit more restrictive than that, in that I have always- so. Because of the work I'd done on gambling, I became very aware that there were a lot of women who were getting into gambling for the first time around about 45. And not just getting into gambling, they were actually um, uh, they were actually becoming addicted to gambling. And I, I was having conversations with these women, and I'd say, when did it start for you? And how did it start for you? And they would come back, more or less, they would say... Uh, same story, different version. They would say that it was three o'clock in the morning. I was feeling pretty depressed and anxious. I was on my own. I didn't know what to do. I had a glass of wine and I ended up blocking up my phone and I saw a, a site that was online slots and I thought, oh, I'll do that. And they got sucked into it and they ended up stealing to fund the gambling. I've spoken to women who have turned to alcohol to take their mind off how awful they're feeling. I've spoke to women who've actually turned to, to illegal drugs because they, they self-medicating to get away from how they were feeling. And I, I just got to thinking, how many women 
are in prison for a first offence, which could be linked to the fact that they were not criminal, but menopausal and made decisions when their hormones were not in the right place and discovered that 72% of the female population in the United Kingdom are either perimenopausal or menopausal women. Wait, so say that one more time. That. 72% yeah. of the population. 72%, yeah. I mean, and that then is astounding. Well, and then you think about, right, so you're in prison and you're menopausal. You've got night sweats and you're sleeping on a rubber mattress with a rubber pillow. And you're in a cell. And if you are hemorrhaging, you haven't got access to decent quality sanitary products. You can't change your bed in every day. You want to have decent underwear. You may not have enough clothes to change into. You're locked in a room for maybe 22 hours a day. You're expected to fit into a regime that says you have to get out to bed at six o'clock to go and have your breakfast, or you have to go and do this, or you have to go and do that. And I just thought, well, when I was ill, when I was, uh, and, and no was menopausal, I would often have a duvet day when I just didn't feel I could get out of bed. I didn't have the energy. I didn't have the will to live. If you were locked up and you have to, or if you don't comply, you end up having days adding to your sentence. Wow. Surely it's worth doing an experiment here. So one of the one women's prisons I spoke to, they took this on board and said that a lot of the real bad behaviours were from women who were over 40. And there was no rationale for this bad behaviour. And they put 60 women on HRT and the behaviours of those 60 women is completely flipped. Holy moly. What? So that's why I say about women who are not working, yeah. if we were to give them HRT, they may, may well want to go to work. But they, at this moment in time, they can't work because they physically can't do it. Well, I mean, you, you talked about hemorrhaging. I think it's important for our audience to know that that is not like a ex extreme fringe case. I mean, there is a lot of, there are a lot of cases of gushing or, you know, a lot of bleeding that happens in this transition too, that we should be aware of. I mean, you mentioned achy joints. We had another expert on the show that said the canary in the coal mine is when our body starts to ache. So that's something that we notice. Sleep is, is an obvious one. Hot flashes, hot flushes. Brain fog. Uh, Pardon, brain fog, brain insomnia, fog. anxiety, rage, low libido. What else? Itchy skin, um, Itchy. dry eyes, brittle nails, hair falling out, um, uh, irritability. There's 40 symptoms. There's 40. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and unless you know all 40 symptoms, then you're not going to you're not going to know you're menopausal. And if, if, if you had the symptoms in front of you, and you answered to each of those symptoms, have I ever had it? I think you'd probably be just surprised how many of them you have got. Well, and I but think the because culture- Because like, doing that. Yeah, I mean, I think your your story is so profound because it's it's not unique in many cases. Like how many women do each of us know that are so busy and so capable and doing so much? Like. I always say, if you need something done, give it to a busy woman, you know, like it, it will be done. Uh, we have this amazing capacity to take more on and do more um, in all of our various roles and is what's the cost of that busyness. And what you're saying is absolutely true. The cost is like acute awareness of what might be the cause of what's going on with us, or even the awareness that we're not a hundred percent who we can be being, you know, if we're enraged or insomniac or cat catastrophizing. I mean, we didn't even talk about that. Um, Eric and Edie, Edie as my two and a half year old, and they went away yesterday or Edie has this new thing where she wants to get in the car to, at night to like fall asleep and drive. And so they went off on a drive and then 10 minutes later I heard sirens and immediately in my brain, I like just connect the two and I'm in a very worried place, you know, and Eric's not texting me back because he's driving. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's it's yeah. not not unique, right? There's yeah. there is grief yeah. this phase of life. You know, we're parents. We have aging parents. We have big jobs. We have these big lives, right? It's so... and then the, the flip side of that is that is the women who are not economically 
uh, viable. Women who are working in factories or working in uh, as clean as in hospitals on low pay jobs. They are working maybe two or three jobs to pay the bills. They never take time for themselves. If they are prioritising on what they're spending their money on, they're spending it on the kids. They're certainly not having conversations with friends and colleagues about the potential of being menopausal. So they completely missed off the radar completely because nobody's well, spoken to them. They're exhausted because yeah. they're working so hard. Yeah. And then they, they say, I'm exhausted because I'm working so hard. But there's other implications yeah. to being exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to go to the doctor and say, look, I do want to have sex with my husband. Please give me testosterone because I don't want to have the bloody sex. They're too tired. Yeah, you know, so... <laughs> oh, we right? like him. We don't know who he is, but we like him. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I do. We do have an audience. If anybody wants to ask questions, you can either put them in the chat or you can um, raise your hand and Carolyn and Jenny. But will... I, can only, I can't see you all at once. I can only see some of you. Right. So we'll we'll pin the person if they want to ask the question directly so that you can see anybody in New York. Anybody in New York um uh, a week Monday. Yeah, Carolyn is in come New York. Come and see me. I'm staying oh. in the UN Plaza. I'm I'll come and in, see you, um, Carolyn. Take yourself I'm off in, yourself, in, Carolyn, um, so Carolyn can see you. Uh, oh, I, I land on. on the Sunday and I'm there on the Monday. I'm in UN Plaza staying. I'll come see you. We Carolyn is on. Can I share? Carolyn's also already on HRT. We um we're gonna do a show where we start talking about how we're treating our own symptoms. But um yeah, share your story a little bit, Carolyn. Yeah, I um it's interesting, Carolyn. I had a I had a I mean nothing could be similar to losing a child. I lost my mom, and yeah. it was fast and heartbreaking. And I you know it was also right around the time I had a job change and I moved and. Um, the pandemic was happening and I just was feeling terrible. I was feeling depressed, but I, and anxious, but I kind of chalked it up to like, well, this, all this stuff is happening and I have two small kids and it took me a while. Like, I'm a little embarrassed to say that it took me like six months to a year to realize there's something else going on. I was in therapy and talking it took to me eight years. And... Don't be embarrassed. I just felt like, you know, of course, I, I felt like I'm pretty self-aware. I'm pretty on top of my shit. And it, it didn't even occur to me that I could be perimenopausal. Anyways, I started talking to Amanda and Jenny. And that's when we started to talk about our symptoms and started to do a little bit more research. And I reached out to someone and got onto HRT. And like you, just the thought of being able to do something about it, because I was starting to feel at work, I was um, not connecting dots. Like I started to panic a little bit. Like I'm not going to be able to have a career. Um, I can't do my job with the way my brain is working right now. So anyways, just the idea that I was going to be able to change it a little bit made a bit, of a, a bit of a difference. So I think that was a placebo effect. But now I've been on it for about a year and I feel like myself. I mean, I still have achy joints and I still have nights. You need testosterone. If you're not on it, you need that and you need collagen. You know, I just, when you were talking, I went on to Amazon and bought some collagen capsules right away because I'm not on that. So I'll add that into my regimen. And if you're going to take collagen, take what they call K2 because that makes it, it absorb all everything that's in the collagen. But okay. if you're not on testosterone and you can get it, Go on it. Yeah, I'm on that, it. that is the game changer. Yeah, I'm on it. But you know what? To your point, and what I often think about is like I have the economic means. I pay to pocket for it in the U.S., and it's expensive. And it's you know, I, it's there are so many women that uh, either don't have access to it because they don't know how to navigate. They have the financial means, but don't know how to find it, or they can't afford it. And it's it's. Yeah. Um, I'm glad it's something that the country is certainly that you're managing over in the UK, but that we're starting to talk about too. But, but we need to get this across to the politicians. You know, this is why I want to do more with Capitol Hill. Um, I, I, I'm doing a bit of work with, uh, so if anybody, if anybody knows a senator or a congressperson who they think may be interested in taking this up, I will give them all the coaching that they need. But And I don't care what political party they are. We need somebody to talk for you guys out there. I mean, I'm sort of getting involved with an organisation called, um, oh, Naomi Watts has just, um, just got involved with us. Have you seen that? Uh, well, Naomi Watson Stripes, they're doing great work in, in the product space for menopause and certainly right. Naomi's so poster child. I'm part, of an, I'm part of a celebrity group called Menopause Mandate. Okay. And 
Naomi Watts has just joined it. So in that group is me, Mariella Frostrop, Lisa Snowden, Gabby Logan, um, Carol Vorderman, and Penny Lancaster, who's Rod Stewart's wife. Oh, cool. Um, and Naomi Watts have just joined us. So, I mean, the plan is that we we try to get our messaging across in, in the States. But I think to do that, we need to raise more political awareness. Um, and all the, farmer, all the farmer that I work with, they're all based in America. And I don't understand why they are not doing more to get the message out in the city. Because you've got private health care. Why on earth have you not got more doctors actually say... Oh, Women's health nurse is actually promoting this. You know, we have this epidemic in this country of not wanting to, not being comfortable saying we don't know something. And, you know, in a medical system that was raised not being taught about menopause, sort of being at a different juncture of your career and not knowing something, I think could be very scary. Yeah. And so it's incumbent upon. Get me you know, on daytime telly. Get me on with someone who does daytime telly and get me on to talk about menopause. That's oh. the game changer. Because I mean, in this country, you. we have something called Loose Women, which is a lunchtime panel show, which is all women. And they talk about just general stuff. So oh. you know, they're all, they're all either being in soap. Yeah. So they're all, you know, like people that women know. Every lunchtime, women in, in work, they'll sit down, they'll put the TV on in the staff room, whatever. That's how we started getting this message out. I was going on this daytime tally. My friends were saying to me, my God, you were posh having a menopause. But once <laughs> we started talking about it on there, it just took off. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. we were reaching women who up until now felt they were on their own and had nobody to talk to. It's shameful. Yeah, we so this will become a podcast. So then what we'll do is send it. We um I I I think my superpower is connecting. So I want to send this to a couple of people that I know and they'll send it to who they know. But um if you want to be used, we'll use you, Carolyn, because um use we me. Help get, you get Michelle yeah. Obama to talk about her menopause. Yeah. Get Oprah Winfrey to talk about her menopause. That's who will do this. It will change the dynamic completely. Yeah, Oprah is starting to talk about it. Um, and she had talked about it for a long time because she had some symptoms that she didn't correlate to menopause when she was in her 50s too. Um, but what's really cool about what's happening here is there is a new generation of celebrities and people who are known um, in their 40s and like early 50s who are starting to talk about menopause, like in that Naomi Watts camp. I know Drew Barrymore just did a show on menopause. There's yeah. an organization here called The Swell um, and they've been creating events around menopause. So um, you know, we're big believers that the, you know, the tide rises all boats. And so we want to work together with as many people as possible to just get the word out and advocate and create platform for people like you who can lead us. I mean, you're doing it. It's so amazing. Like you found the right narrative, right? You found the right listening for the audience, whether it's parliament, whether it's the men, whether it's the doctors, I think that's what yeah. we can really draft off of because people listen you know the power is in the listening and so how do we create a message that people can't deny um and i love the way that you correlate it to all these other implications that matter to different people and in, in whatever um situation they're in and, it's, and that's all it it's about it's it's liberating is the word i use once you once you acknowledge it and you own it and you talk about it, then it's liberating. I, I, I'm doing talks all the time. Yesterday, I went to um, a, a company that make medical equipment. They're an American company. I went there, and I was talking to them. At the end of that talk, six people came on to me, three of whom were men, to say that, from what I was saying, they've recognised symptoms in their wife. What more could they do? I did Budweiser about a month ago. I went to Budweiser um, and I offered if they wanted to do something on Zoom or wherever with the American, uh, anywhere, anywhere in the world. Because unless we talk about this and raise awareness, this is this is an, a global scandal. It's 2023 and we're only now looking at to do something to... To, it's not even about protection. It's about normality. It's about giving women normality for as long as they want it. I think this is the third wave of feminism. You know, like we saw the second wave with a birth control pill and women taking agency over their yeah. body, their bodies. This is the third wave of a of feminism. If we deny menopause, we're de denying what what it what it could feel like to actually be equal. 
Yeah. Right. And, and that's what's at stake. Carolyn, when are you going to be in DC on Capitol Hill? Like, is there anything we can do to support you? Should we have a rally? Should we come down there with signs? Yeah. Well, um, uh, let me, let me go back. Right. So I, the women's health organization, they were, they're lobbyists. They've got some kind of charity. Um, in DC, so they were the last people. So we went to we went to the White House, and we spoke to I spoke to four women in the White House who do one was work, one was women health, one was social mobility, and the other one was LGBTQ plus stuff. So I talked to them, and I've emailed them since. Then I went to meet D Dorothy Fink, and she was in. She was on Capitol Hill. She wasn't in the White House. She was on Capitol Hill, and I spoke to her, and I shared stuff with her. And then we went to see this women's health organisation. What I said to them was exactly what you just said. I'll help work with them, and then you need a rally and really bring attention to it. So if you keep in touch, if you is it Tom that you've been working yep. with, Amanda? If you yep. keep in touch with Tom, we'll find out a bit more and put you guys in touch with them. Great. Great. I, um, you said a couple things here that I want to see on a poster <laughs> that we can all hold something around, um, men, men, like something really menopause and criminal. I have to go back and pull the quote, but, um, there's so much here. Um, does anybody have any questions while we, we have Carolyn for four more minutes before she sails off into her weekend and maybe has a duvet day tomorrow. I also want to no, create permission for everybody to have a du duvet day whenever they need it. Um, there's no shame in taking rest as we know, right? Yeah. Any other questions for Carolyn before we send her off into the Welsh sunset? Thank you for who you are, Carolyn. Thank you for being so generous. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. I mean, it's so fun. Um, it's heartbreaking and um, it's honest and it is, and you have filled all of us with possibility. Um, not only that 64 looks like it does on us as it does on you um you wear it well friend thank you so much and anything i can do to help you just let me know yeah and and as as we say in welsh yahida cheers yahida. use me as a resource thank you, you guys love you lads bye. thanks Carolyn. see you bye everyone have a great weekend thank you thank you